Hey, everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we're talking about how to invest like the best investors in the world, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, deep value and investing. And my dad. We can add that now, Dad, <laughs> since it's the title of our book, Invested. That's right. Um, except for this podcast, where we're not talking about how they do it. We're talking about <laughs> one little tweak, or maybe a little tweak. Um, because as we were saying last time, that we have a certain advantage of being small and nimble that Warren and Charlie have long ago given up. Um, but they used to use that advantage substantially by doing lots of different kinds of options trades and lots of merger acquisition kinds of trades and uh, much, much different than their, you know, sort of historical um, sort of track record would indicate. And, um, and really? that is not, this is not to say that Warren and Charlie are, are traders per se, but that they, they didn't just do long, you know, long value investing. They're, there's another element, right? Back in the day. When okay, they, wait a second. You know, now, this is, you might have mentioned this before, but I'm feeling like it's new information for some reason. So, I mean, it would make sense, I guess, that they wouldn't do only long trades because people who are really smart and who get really into this stuff tend to do uh, other kinds of, of investing, other kinds of, or I guess you would call it trading, not investing, right? Right, right. Where we're speculating to a degree. So what long, long trades, the term means is that it's what I think of as just buying a company. You're just straight right. up buy the stock of a company the end and you hope it goes up eventually. Right. And you're on, you're on with, uh, with Warren and Charlie right there. Yeah. 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 And then the opposite of a long trade, just to be clear here for everybody who doesn't know is a short trade, which means that you sell stock that you don't own, which makes no sense to me, but you're betting that it will go down and then you buy it back at this like lower price. No? Well, just, just yes. to clarify. Yes. <laughs> please, please clarify. Cause I don't get option selling at all. I'm sorry. Short selling at all. Short selling. Or so, option selling. So let's say that I borrow my friend's car. Mm -hmm. Wonderful car, beautiful $100,000 Mercedes car. And I drive it. Now I'm going to borrow this car because my cousin works in Berlin or wherever <laughs> Mercedes headquarters and <laughs> <laughs> wherever that is Dusseldorf or something. And he, and he's fed me a little secret, like on the movie billions, right at showtime. Like I've got inside info that I have to be very sneaky about. So I don't get taken down by the sec. Right? Yeah, Cause that's super illegal, super illegal. So I get this inside that that model of Mercedes that my friend owns. And let's say it's yours just to identify things. I'm borrowing your Mercedes. Okay, Danielle. Okay. That model of Mercedes they just found out at headquarters, when you rear end it, it explodes in a fireball. Oh, and so that information has not come out yet to the public. They're still trying to decide how to best handle that. And so, um, but I know it's very soon that it's going to come out. Okay. You with me? All right. Yeah. Now, what will be the value of that Mercedes if Wait that information comes out? Now, I own the car and I don't know that, right? You but do you, not know that. But you are borrowing the car and you found this out from a third party. Right. Before Got I borrowed it. the car, I'm borrowing okay. the car because I found this out from a third party. Understood. You're borrowing and, a car that will explode because you found it out? Yes. Okay. Right. Now, now remember, we're, we got to think about the value of the car. Value of the car right now, the way it sits is $100,000. I should be able to get a hundred grand for it, or you should if you sell it. Mm -hmm. 
But once they announce that it explodes, maybe not so much worth a hundred thousand anymore. Yeah. You with me? Yeah. I don't know how down, how far down it's going, but it ain't going to be a hundred anymore. Correct. Agreed. All right. Now here's where I get sneaky. I borrow your car. Now I drive it to a dealer and I sell it to him for $100,000. Okay. And then I come back to your house in a cab, in an Uber. Okay. And you go, where's my car? <laughs> and I say, well, I sold it. And you go, what? And I say, yeah, but here, hold this $100,000 as collateral for your car. And I will get you your car back in the next few weeks. All right. Okay, so far? Mm -hmm. All right. Ignore that this would not happen in your world, but ignore that for a second. Yeah. It does happen in the brokerage world. All right. So now I go and wait. Now I wait. And sure enough, two weeks later, here comes this horrible announcement about this car. And I wait another week. And by the time that next week is open or over, everything has been confirmed. <clears throat> and now I go back to the original dealer that I sold it to. And I said, I'd like to buy that car back. And they go, fine, we would love to sell it back to you. Yeah, they're like, nobody's come mm -hmm. in here for two weeks. <laughs> right. <laughs> Nobody wants to buy this car. I said, I'll give you 20000 for it. Mm -hmm. They go, give us forty, And I go, okay, I'll give you thirty, And we do a deal. Mm -hmm. I now buy your car for $30,000. Now, that's the first money I've put out so far. I bought your car from the dealer for 30000 Now, I owe you a car. I don't owe you money. I owe you a car. So I got to drive your car back and I give you back your car mm -hmm. and you give me the hundred thousand mm dollars. -hmm. So you made 70. I made 70 grand by shorting your car. That is a really cool explanation, dad. <laughs> I've done that one before. <laughs> <laughs> because in class I go through that explanation and then I tell people why we don't do that. Okay, why don't we do that? Because it's super duper risky in case the information doesn't come out in the next few weeks. You, your lawyer gene just kicked in big time there. Yes, that's exactly why. Because it's really, there's so many things that can happen, mm -hmm. even if I'm right mm -hmm. about the information. Yeah. For example, Volkswagen could buy Mercedes to get them out of the trouble. So sometimes even when you're right, you get crushed. So for example, um, one of my favorite investors is, is, a, is a guy named um, David Einhorn, phenomenal investor who shorted uh, Green Mountain Coffee Roasters hmm. because he thought there was some, some fraud going on in their accounting. He shorted it, it did go way down. I'm sure he made a lot of money. But then Coca-Cola came in and bought the whole company. Oh. And just on the rumor, or Coke either bought them or entered a deal. I think they entered a deal with them. And just on the rumor that Coke was going to do that, the stock went through the roof. Oh. Right? So Einhorn shorting these guys at around 90 bucks a share. They go clear down to 25 a share. And I hope he covered, right? By covering, that means you go in and you buy the stock in the market for 25 and hand it back to the broker. And he gives you your $90 a share. Mm -hmm. um, but if he didn't, the stock went clear back up to about 110 or 120. Wow. As Coke got involved. I so, would not be able to handle being right about something yeah. and still losing. Yeah. It's I would horrible. not be able to handle that. It's 
horrible. Ask me how I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, the pain of that. Like, it's one yeah. thing to be wrong and go, okay, like, we talk about this all the time, you know, like, our checklist of expensive errors that investors have made that's in our book, Invested. Like, we talk about stuff we've screwed up on, stuff we've missed. That stuff I can handle. Like, that's my error. That's user error. That's something I can work on in the future. But to be right and not have screwed up and not have missed something and still get totally crushed like that, oh, Lord. Oh, yeah. It's not fun. And that is one of the main reasons that Warren and Charlie don't short companies. Even though they have lots of information that the company's not good. The second reason is that early in in Warren's career, he um, acquired a company near Omaha uh, that um, was in a a small town in Nebraska. And he basically um, bought the company because the value of the company was substantially more broken up into pieces and sold off in pieces than it was selling for in the market. Hmm. In other words, he could like it, like buying a, a, a Porsche, a Porsche car for such a cheap price that you can take the engine out and sell the engine and get your money back. And then you've got the wheels, you got the tires, you got the seats, you can disassemble the car for a profit, right? Yeah. So Warren did that in this small town at early, early stage in his career. And of course, when he disassembled the pieces, a lot of people lost their jobs in that town. Mm. And I the thought town, you were going to say something like that. Yeah. You don't see him being the kind of person who can just break up a company and feel okay about it. I think he was horrified, actually. Yeah. He made money on the backs of working people. Um, even if the company deserved to be broken up, even if it was the right economic thing to do, the harsh reality is that a lot of people, his state neighbors were lo- lost their jobs. And I think it was a lesson I think he never forgot. Hmm. So I, I read that in one of his biographies and it, it, it's such an important story uh, for Warren and Charlie, why they don't short companies because short sellers are hated by management, right? I mean, the people who are running the company, the people who work there, remember we're talking about investing in companies and every dollar you put into this company is a vote for that company to be around in the future. Exactly. Well, every dollar you short a company is a vote for it to fail in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. So how do you think your the employees feel about you if you're a big short seller? They hate you. Yeah, of and, course. Right? And and the, the management hates you. And this is just not Buffett's oeuvre at all. He he would prefer to like most of us to be loved rather than hated. Um, and he, you know, so there are short sellers out there who do very, very well, but it's for that reason, I'm encouraging our students to really focus on the positive. Let's encourage companies. Let's not discourage them. And, um, and the, the third reason that shorting is maybe is not taught by me is that um, the companies that you short, you should restrict to those companies which are fads, failures, and frauds. Okay, those fads, are the three Fads, failures, and frauds. Right. Fads yeah. like trends. Yeah, something that's just a you know the hula hoop or, or the pet rock or something just a faddish, not going to be around long term kind of a company. That's a decent thing to focus on a short. A fraud, of course, if you can identify a fraud, like Einhorn thought he identified accounting fraud. Um, it's at, uh, at at Green Mountain, 
you know, the, if you can under, if you're at that level of forensic accounting that you can find that uh, when the SEC isn't finding it and the shareholders aren't spotting it, that might be a level I can't play at. I'm thinking you're describing me to a T, Dad. I mean, yeah, I I'm, totally I'm not there. Forensic accounting. Yeah, I'm not there. And um, and there's just too many clever ways that accountants who are, who are handling corporate books can mess with the accounting in ways that are not illegal or not fraudulent. And it's just very confusing. So I'm, I'm not going there. And, um, and finally, that the company is just a failure, that, that the products have failed completely. It's going um, down. You can see it down. that way. Yeah. So one of the favorite shorts out there right now for a lot of people is Tesla. Really? People are shorting Tesla? They because are. Because the price is so insane. Because the stock price will require the company to perform someday and deliver a lot of vehicles into the marketplace. And they're having production trouble with their lower price sedan. Yeah, they are. And so this is where shorts come in. They come in and they look at this and they say, well, you know, Elon Musk is this visionary, but he's a visionary for going into space and he's a visionary for solar. and He's a visionary for cars and he's a vi- What else does he want to be a visionary on? And so is he focused enough? And there's a recent article, I think, that was really to the point, And that is that, you got this guy named Durant who basically built GM and he was a visionary back in the 1900s and he built this fabulous company, but he was looking to be the next visionary of the next thing and the next thing. And Alfred Sloan was brought in uh, by the board to try to get this company under control. And Sloan is the guy who made GM super successful in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. And so the company wouldn't probably have made it under Duran and it made it big under Sloan. So I wouldn't be surprised if there was that guy floating around Musk's organization waiting to actually be the guy who makes production work, Hmm. right? Yeah. Because, and here's what the shorts position is. He's not going to get there soon enough, that guy, because GM, Mercedes, They've been watching Tesla for years now, and they're, on, they're underway in their own sort of slow, behemoth, turn the ship kind of way. And the question is whether, whether Tesla is going to get there soon enough, not whether they'll get there, they'll get there, but whether they get there soon enough to fight off the established mainstream companies. I would guess that the other reason is that the actual stock price of Tesla is so high compared to how much money they actually make and how many cars they actually make. It's something like the size of GM or something like that. Like it's, I'm getting it wrong, but it's- No, no, you're you're not wrong. It's right up there. Yeah. It's insane for what they actually produce, which is hardly anything compared to what GM produces. Right. And so I can see shorting it just thinking like, this is not sustainable, this price, you know? This, right. it, it reflects nothing that's in reality that's happening at the company. Right. It's all just optimism about Elon Musk, which right. I completely get. I completely get it. We all think what he's doing is fantastic. I mean, he has created a sea change in car manufacturing that has made the electric car be a viable option. And that's incredible and world changing for us. Yep. And I really respect all the work that he does, but that doesn't mean that the stock price of his company has to be the same as. And that's the toughest yeah. thing. You are thinking like an investor now. That is a person who needs certainty about the future in order that this is not a speculation. Hmm. So Tesla by 
any definition of speculation is a speculative investment. It's a trade. It isn't an investment in our, in our definition of investment. Yeah. You're thinking like an investor. That's a really good compliment. I appreciate that. Yeah. You're definitely thinking like an investor and the people, and the hard thing about being a good investor is that you have to let go of a lot of things you yearn to own. Mm -hmm. You, You have to put those in that risky biz category and keep the amount of money you're exposing um, to a, a minimum because it's at risk. You don't know where it's going to come out. It's a lot of fun to buy Tesla and to be feeling like, hey, man, I own the future here. This is a great company. But you wouldn't want to bet your retirement on that, mm-hmm. right? So you have to, you go back to Warren Buffett's great statement that, that Bill Gates early on told him, you know, buy Microsoft. I mean, hey, they're buddies by, you you know, you need a computer, Warren, you need a computer. And when you get one, you're going to see how important Windows and Excel are, Microsoft products. And Bubba said, what do I need a computer for? And Gates goes, well, you you need it to do your taxes, I guess. And Bubba goes, I I don't pay taxes. (laughs) No, no, Gates said, "You, you, you need it to keep track of your stocks. And Bubba says, I only have one stock. <laughs> I only own Berkshire. Hey, speaking of Berkshire, great segue, Dad. We mm-hmm. are going to be at the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. I'm just going to throw this in there quickly. Um, and we're, as I mentioned last time, we're uh, scheduling as we go here. So we've got our live podcast scheduled on Sunday at 1 p.m. at the Bookworm. Please come early, and there's going to be limited seating um 1 p.m at the bookworm in downtown omaha and we're going to have special guest laura rittenhouse or lj rittenhouse who is an incredible buffett expert and we're going to talk all about mr buffett mr munger our experience at the meeting and maybe have some other special guests some bold face names dropping in as well yeah don't miss it are we going live if we can are we going to be like we're going live if we can. We're working out all those details. So we'll probably be on Facebook and Instagram at least, and then maybe live otherwise also. Yeah, we'll try to be live at one o'clock. Yeah, and so that's one o'clock central on Sunday, May 3rd. And what's what's Laura's book's name that is just so phenomenal? Sunday, May 6th. Sorry, Sunday, May 6th. Sunday, May 6th, 1 p.m. Central. Um, what is the name of one of her books? Is that what you said? The main book that I think is just so great about it's called how you read a letter between the lines. And yeah. I put this in my most recent, my first actually newsletter that I send out now um, with like what I'm looking at, what I'm reading, what I'm thinking about as far as companies. And, um, and I featured her book because I thought it was such genius. And then I got to talk to her. We both got to meet her and uh, convinced her to be on the podcast with us, which well, she is off the charts, super smart. And she's a friend of Warren Buffett's and he praised her for putting this book out. He said, you're on the side of the angels in this battle um, against sort of the corporate um, reality time warp thing that they do, right? They, they, they write, they write letters that many of these corporate officers just have written by their PR people yeah. And it's just full of soft, mushy goo um, and reflects nothing about the things we need to know as an investor. And Laura ranks these guys' uh, letters and shows you how to do it too. Shows us how to do it. What and she I'm- does is fascinating. She uses words 
to determine actually what the numbers mean. And as you all know, if you've listened to this podcast at all, I love it. I just love it so much because words I can understand, numbers more difficult. Um, so what I'm also excited about, Dad, is I don't think we'll get into her book uh, on that podcast because I want to hear about her impression of the shareholder meeting and the weekend, oh, very and, like true. all the people she's met and everything because she knows very everybody. True. But so go, go, go read the book. Perspective. But what I am going to do is we're going to have her on the podcast oh. for a proper conversation oh, about good. her book in the future. And what we're going to do, guys, is launch our invested book club finally. So you're right, Dad. Take this as the first sign, and we'll mention it again coming up once we have everything scheduled. But um, go get her book, Investing Between the Lines, yeah. so that you know what we're talking about when we speak with her. It's and pretty cool because it so that you know, like, when you should have read it by. Because you know um, how important I think letters are from the CEOs, and how important Buffett thinks the letter is, and what an incredible letter he writes to give people everything they need to know in order to figure out the value of the business once a year. How are we doing? What's the value of this business? And that's what investors need to know. And that's of course what many CEOs don't bother to give us because they don't want you to look at them too closely. So we want to look very closely and Laura really helps us out with that. So get yeah. the book. So that's exciting. And let's get back to the short selling and what we've been talking about, which relates, this is why this came up. And just so you guys know, I haven't forgotten the big picture of what we're talking about here. What we're talking Good, about. Good, because I've completely forgotten the big picture. I don't know where we're at. That's where are we why talking I'm here. About? <laughs> I'm here to say we're talking about the market. We're talking about what is happening in this market, which is going up and down, lately down. Um, and how we, as, as you put it wonderfully, long-oriented, not long trade and long-term oriented investors um, should think about this market and interpret it. And what you had been telling us a few episodes ago is about these technical indicators, which like blew my head off. And I don't, we're going to get, we're going to get to them because we didn't end up finishing because we got off talking about intrinsic value of companies and intrinsic oh prices. God. I'm, I'm seeing something historic right now on my screen. Oh yeah. Yeah, like real time, these arrows, these indicators, I call them arrows because they're green if they're indicating get in and they're red if they're indicating get out. And one of those arrows is flickering red and then it disappears real time hmm. when it hasn't flickered red for two years. Hmm. It's flickering Which right arrow is now. That? Which arrow? Mac, the MACD. The oh, MACD. you told us about the MACD. That was the Jeez. first one you told us about. It just went red just now as I'm speaking. It went red and it had gone red a couple minutes ago. It's gone again. It's no longer red. It, in other words, we're on the cusp here of a significant shift if this thing goes red in the next few days. A significant shift in the direction of the market. Not significant enough to pull the trigger and get out, but we're getting there. And this is- uh, You we'll, guys, we'll we're recording this. this. I'm not gonna tell you exactly when we're recording this because this is for education and entertainment ah, only. Right on, this is entertainment portion of the podcast. Exactly. Um, so we're recording it sometime around when this is actually coming out, but you know, 
or not seven months in advance <laughs> and <laughs> take it as entertainment education um, just because some little arrow on my dad's screen showed up doesn't actually mean anything right, exactly to me as as you've been telling us so strongly dad that these indicators actually are to be taken very much at your own risk. So when you see an arrow, okay, so guys, give me a minute here because I know we're supposed to talk about what happens if the story has changed based on price. That's where we left it last time. Yeah, but we will. I wanna ask you right one, now, dad, you're looking at this flickering arrow. What does that tell you and how much of a grain of salt do you take with it? I take it with quite a big grain of salt at this Because you sounded point. pretty excited just now. I know. You didn't sound very salty. No. I, I, it's a grain of salt. However, there's this huge bucket of salt hanging over the table. <laughs> and it just dribbled. Like sword it just Damocles. dribbled. Exactly. The salt of Dam Damocles is hanging over the table. And it just dribbled a little on the table right there. <laughs> and if there's, there's one more, there's already one that's been triggered. If this one is now dribbled a little on the table, the next one will be the bucket. Why are you saying that? Why the next one? Because you had told me before that there were three indicators. We talked about the MACD. Mm -hmm. Wait, did we talk about the MACD? Or did we talk? Oh, sorry, we didn't talk about the MACD. We talked about the moving average. Right. We, the ones right. we didn't talk about were the MACD and the stochastic. Right. So and when course, you say I'm looking at one and now I need one other one, that's two, not three. Right. So I'm looking at three, but one is firmly read. Already. Oh, okay. Firmly read already as of the end of March. And that had not been read since 2000, early 2015. So this is a three year switch here that's come along. And the moving average actually hasn't been read since late 2015. It's still green. And therefore, the salt of, Demo what is it? <laughs> the sword of Damocles. Damocles. The salt of Damocles <laughs> is hanging over the table still. But um, the one that's moving right now and bouncing back and forth between red and neutral, or red and green, really, is uh, the MACD. So we'll get into all this, you guys. This is, this is not the, we take this with a grain of salt. Uh, unless a lot of other things are in place and a lot of other things are in place right now that have been a long time coming uh, for this market to shift and move the other direction. Um, there's a lot of head fakes in this market and a lot the federal government can do to prevent the market from continuing in a direction which it wants to go, which is down. Um, and those things it will do as much as it possibly can. There's not a politician in America that wants to be serving in his capacity as a politician in the, in, the, in the Republican Party right now, who wants this market to go down. Not the no. Democrats would love to see it go down, of course, because <laughs> they'll be swept into the next election. Now but, tell me, Dad, should, anyway. we, should we talk about what the MACD is since you just mentioned it? Or do you want to go ahead and talk about the- I want to talk about price, because okay. price, is, price is the bigger picture here. All of these indicators are driven by price over time. So prices over time, moving averages over time. And so let's just talk about price for a second and then we'll come back next time and we'll talk about the actual use of price over time um, in these computer tools that drive uh, trading um, across the market. 
So price over time. And the, the big question was, do we make a decision based on changes in price? Yeah, right? exactly. Is that what, kind of, what no, were you driving at? That's exactly right. So my question was, we were talking about going on about the story of the company. So the story of the company is the same as it has been. Everything's just chilling, moving along, except that let's say the price of the company has made some big enough change that I, a lazy investor who pays no attention, has even noticed it. Right. Does that mean that the story, like, does that implicate the story? Or yeah. does it not? Is it only yeah. price and my story is the same? Like, how do I think about it? You think about price as part of the story. Okay. So price is a component of the story. And the reason price is a component of the story is because Ultimately, the story is about understanding the business well enough to determine the value of the business and a price that we'd like to pay for it. Okay. So price is baked into the story. It's almost a conclusion of the story is price we'd like to pay for it. Well, well part it's almost like actually instead of price being part of the story, because I actually purposely don't look at the real life price of a company when I'm writing the story. Cause I don't no, care shouldn't. what the market thinks. What you I care about is what I think right. the value of the company is. Well, yes and no. Um, we do one uh, version of valuing a business called, we call the margin of safety analysis. And right. we talk about this at length in the Which book. We went, and we went through it a lot last week. Yeah. Right. And that does get us to what we call intrinsic value or the value of the business or what it's worth, right? But the other forms of valuing the business or putting a price on the business are really, they're not really forms of value in it. They're forms of pricing. Yeah, you're exactly right. That's true. That's true. We have two kinds of pricing and one kind of valuation. Excuse yeah. me? Excuse we, me? Did, excuse oh, me? oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> what did you just say? Uh. Phil Town, you are correct. I, I am so killing it. Corrected by you in this moment. <laughs> and I would just like to point out that that this is so historical. And I just want to thank you, my friends. I want to thank my family. <laughs> I thank all of you who are here today. Okay, now I have a I have a comment. Are you ready for this? Yeah. I have your own words in our book. Page 235, everybody. Oh, no. Remember, Dad, I'm going to read. Remember, Dad admonished me. Price is actually least important because time will fix errors on a wonderful business. If you buy a great company but pay too high a price, if it stays wonderful, it will eventually be worth more than you paid for it. You'll just have to wait longer. <laughs> and this is in the context of our expensive errors list, um, which is a fantastic checklist of errors that my dad has made, that other investors have made, um, which is great to check things against. So I, I, find this, I find this conversation really interesting about whether the actual price in the market is part of the story or, or affects the story at all. So what you're saying is the price that I find, that's part of the story and it's incredibly important part of the story to understanding the company, to making sure you know what you think is gonna happen with that company, to understanding the event that's happening with that company. Right, right. You're like dying laughing over there. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing that lawyer thing. So 
which I love so much. And, and, but here's, here's what I was driving at in that price quote from the book. And that is that it's least important, but it's not unimportant. It's part exactly, of exactly. I wasn't trying to invalidate my, you are correct. Okay, I, know I, was, I was adding color. And so we, we, we need to understand the business and then we need to figure out what we're willing to pay for it. And we like to be able to think that that involves figuring out what the value is. But I think as Warren has pointed out um, more than once, we're perfectly capable of, of we, we don't necessarily understand for sure that we've got the growth rate right, that we've got the PE rate, that we, that we know 10 years from now what this will be worth. That's obviously quite uh, difficult for most companies to know what it'll be worth. But we might have a range that we feel we're comfortable with. And the reason I'm bringing that up, that idea that we probably are going to have an idea about value uh-huh is because when Warren was really getting rolling in the 1950s, his standard modus operandi was to sell at that value price. When he got the value at at the the value. At the value. Yes. Okay. Therefore, he knew what he thought the value was, obviously. In other words, he's going to buy it at a good price. But he does, he does understand the value in a range well enough to say, hey, we might not know exactly, but we know we're in the ballpark and we're going to sell here and we're going to take our profits. And on the basis of that, he was killing it. I mean, he was making 30, 50% a year, 100% some years hmm. by liquidating these companies as they got toward their intrinsic value. And when you think about that, that's really smart. Because at intrinsic value, a company stops having a super high rate of return for you if, that you have because you bought it on sale. Yeah. So, for example, if we buy a stock at half of its real value, which is what our target is, right? We want to buy it at about half of real value or intrinsic okay. value. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to real value. We've doubled our money. Now, our compounded rate of return is just a question of we've doubled our money in how long? If we doubled it in five years, our compounded return is 15%. If we doubled it in three years, our compounded return is 26% per year, right? Now, let's assume that this company is a slow-growing chewing gum company like Wrigley's or something, and we love the business and it's super on sale, okay? So we go buy it. And son of a gun, we were right about buying it at that price, and within three years, it goes back to its real value that we believed it was worth. And that means we've doubled our money in three years. Yes. You're, you're writing things on the page. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I worry every time I start to talk numbers, did you just zone out on me? No, are you kidding me? I'm okay, really struggling between this idea of all of a sudden you're telling me Warren Buffett has been selling for years and years at the, I suppose, intrinsic value. Are we intrinsic value. value? But let, let's be clear. He only is, he only did that years and years ago when he got big, he couldn't do that anymore. Well, right. But the advice that you told me and that we have enshrined in <laughs> our book is you don't sell unless the story has changed. And Warren Buffett says you never sell and you only have 20 companies to buy in your entire lifetime. And, um, you know, it's okay if you're sort of changing your mind on that, but let's like acknowledge that this is a change 
I'm is, not changing my change? mind on this. Okay. It's not a change. No, this is actually to the point of owning 20 companies in your whole life and getting very wealthy from it. So follow this, that as this company goes back up to its real value, we've just doubled our money. And let's say it took three years for this chewing gum company to do that. And we're making 26% per year. That's a stunning, huge, gigantic rate of return. So we're killing it. Yeah. But now this chewing gum company is no longer going, it, it, it doesn't grow at 26% a year. We only got 26% a year because we bought it massively on sale. Sure, understood. So the actual growth of our money from the time it returns to its real value in the market goes down to whatever its growth rate is of earnings, which let's just stay in this case, stipulate in this case, is 4% a year. Earnings growth is 4% a year. Okay. So we got 26%, 26%, 26%, and now we own it forever and we get 4%, 4%, 4%, 4%, 4%, 4%. You see what I'm saying? I do. Okay. So when Buffett was small and nimble, he thought it was a better idea to unload that thing at that price of intrinsic value and then go buy something else that's on sale. Hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, let me take us to the 20 companies. This chewing gum company being one of our 20 companies, we sell it as it's reaching its intrinsic value about the time the market has recovered from the last recession. You following me? Mm-hmm. We sell it there at that high value, its full value. And now it's on our watch list and we wait for the next recession. And sure enough, here it comes two or three years later, next recession chops the price in half again and we step in and buy our chewing gum company back. Hmm. And then the recession's over, it goes back up, we double our money and we wait, you know, it's some time in there, we sell it and we wait for the next recession and we buy it back. And this is, this is Buffett's modus operandi for many years is, to buy, and let's take the case of Coca-Cola, right? If he could have been nimble enough, he would have sold Coke at 75 bucks a share. We know that because he told us the reason he didn't sell it was because he wasn't nimble anymore. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. said, if you don't think the size of your investment portfolio is a weight on your returns, you, you don't know how hard a weight that is. Yeah. So let's say he was nimble and sold it at 75 and Coke came down to 40. He would be a buyer again. And buy Coke, wait goes back up, sell it again. So it's, you can do the same companies over and over again if you're nimble enough. Does that make sense, honey? It makes sense. I think the answer is that one way, tell me what you think about this. The answer is that one way the story can change. Let me back up. The answer is the story has changed. The way the story has changed is the event has resolved itself and therefore the price has gone up to its intrinsic value. Exactly. And therefore the price does affect the story or the story does affect the price. They affect each other. And that's the answer. So yes, the story has changed. Yes. It doesn't mean that you're not still following that company and, and loving it and, you know, being obsessed with it in every way. Exactly. And if you happen to own a company that's not a chewing gum company, 
you may not want to sell it at its intrinsic value because wonderful companies, and this is what Charlie brought to the game, wonderful companies have a way of growing quite fast. So yeah. even though you had this explosive growth in your returns because you bought it so cheap, it doesn't mean that it's not going to be something you want to hang on to. If you'd done that, let's say with, uh, with Walmart, a company I've criticized here, but let me use it as an example of a company that's grown, that did grow for at 20% a year for many, many years. Um, you could have bought and sold that company or you could have just hung on to it and made 20% a year just hanging on to it because the growth rate of the company itself was 20% a year. Hmm. We don't want to sell those companies. We don't want to sell companies perhaps that are making a return on our capital of 20% a year. Um, if, you know, maybe they're giving a lot of that money back to us every year. What, what the heck? I don't want to sell that. Seize Candy, for example. I was just going to say Seize Candy. I wrote yeah. down Seize Candy. $65 million a year in cash flow on a company Buffett paid $25 million for. You don't want to sell that company. That's a golden goose. Hmm. It's just flowing cash into you. So it's really just about what's the return on your capital that you'll make that decision on. And ideally, we never want to sell those companies. Ideally, because they continue to grow, continue to grow, continue to grow. We don't have to do anything. They compound our money at a great rate of return. Leave it alone. Leave it there. We're not smart enough to beat that company's rate of return. Um, let's just let them have it and rock and roll. I mean, what we're getting at here overall, and this is our entire theme right now, I think, is do we as investors sell what we own right now to prepare our wash tub when it's raining gold? Or do we not? Do we hold on? And because right. we don't have unlimited funds in the bank account, right? So, and the answer is, let's. Uh, if the company is raining gold itself, because of its huge rate of growth internally, you've already got it on sale. You would buy more at this price or near this price. Hang on to that one. If it is a company that's gotten to intrinsic value and it's way overpriced, you, you, in a big recession, it's going to crash. You're going to be able to buy it back. Let's talk technical indicators next time. Next time. That was fun. Okay, <laughs> we got to go play. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Just want to remind you all that I was right. <laughs> I was right. Bye. Time Bye. to go play. See you. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to investedpodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free, where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, as our lawyers want me to say, everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play.